0: As an educator, my job is to get you, Jen, my students, anyone who crosses my path to think, let's think about what we do and why we do it and how we do it. And let's underpin our practice with some theory, which is really poorly articulated currently in the books. And then let's evidence with a quality research, what outcomes, what do our children learn? What is it we want them to learn? What is it they have learned?
1: We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon.
2: Hello and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today we're going to take a look at a topic that is pretty close to my heart and we're actually going to take a pretty critical look at it while we're at it. Our topic today is forest schools. We've done a couple of episodes in the past on the importance of outdoor play and on Dr. Scott Sampson's book, How to Raise a Wild Child. And I think the research on the value of outdoor play to very young children is pretty clear. So I guess we sort of assume, and I'm counting myself here up until this point, that if outdoor play is great for young children, then forest schools must be also great for slightly older children. And while I certainly hope that the conclusion of this episode is not that forest schools are the worst thing ever for children, I'm going to be upfront in letting you know that the quality of the scientific research on the benefits of forest schools is really not amazing. So here today to help us dig into the literature is Dr. Mark Leather, who's Senior Lecturer in Adventure Education and Outdoor Learning at Plymouth Margin University in England. Dr. Leather received his bachelor's degree in science education from the University of Exeter, then a master's in outdoor education from the University of Edinburgh, and his doctorate in education from the University of Exeter. I approached him specifically to discuss this topic with us because of a paper he published this year in the Journal of Outdoor and Environmental Education called A Critique of Forest School or Something Lost in Translation. Because I think that when you really want to truly understand an idea, it can be helpful to talk with somebody who's critiqued that idea rather than someone who only sees the good in it. And I need to get to the bottom of this because my husband and I plan to send our daughter to a forest school. So Dr. Leather, welcome, and are you up for the task? Uh,
0: Thank you, Jen. And yes, I certainly am up for the task.
2: (laughs) Awesome. So let's kind of start at the beginning and talk about where forest schools came from and what impact that has on the way it's practiced. Because I think they're most commonly associated with Scandinavian countries, although I was interested to find there was actually a forest school in Wisconsin in the 1920s. And so I'm curious about how the people in Scandinavia view nature and how often they're in nature and how that differs from how people in the U.S. and the U.K. view nature.
0: Okay. Well, that's a great starting point, Jen. Thank you. And I think what we have to understand is that we're talking about something in terms of uh, 21st century forest school that is uh, branding and a an approach to outdoor education or outdoor learning. And that our cultures, whilst they are very similar, are specifically different. And by that, I do mean American culture is similar yet different to British culture, and again, British culture is white, European, uh, Northern Europe, traditionally uh, male-dominated, as is the Scandinavian cultures. Yet at the same time, in 2018, what we do and how we do it is similar yet different because of those social, historical, and cultural pasts that we have. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of how we perceive what a forest school experience is or may be, it's going to be slightly different, which is why my paper that critiqued forest school, which did highlight the good aspects as well as the aspects that I think required questioning, was titled Lost in Translation. Mm -hmm. So I titled it Lost in Translation because as I see it, and as I explored in the paper, forest school and sometimes known as forest kindergarten, came from the Danish scholar and Scandinavian Freeluftsliv, which is a philosophical and cultural approach to being outdoors and being in nature. And what we see in the UK has been the adoption of this philosophical approach to become a product, a commodity, where in 21st century education, Knowledge is a product and it's traded and sold. And so, one of the arguments I make is that this cultural translation, that's something the essence perhaps of what is special and positive about forest school, can perhaps at some stages of its operationalization of when it's taught and it's led. Uh, something is lost.
2: Mm, Yeah, and I just want to sort of make that a little bit more concrete. I think there is sort of this tradition in Scandinavia of people being a part of nature, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the the word that means free air life, but it's, (laughs) it has a whole lot of consonants in it. And so, whereas in the UK, I don't think there really is that tradition. And certainly in the US is the tradition of seeing the wilderness as being something that's scary. And now it's sort of something that's out there and we go visit it, but we don't stay there. And it seems to me that what you're saying is that we're importing this forest school and we're you know credentializing these teachers with a, a scheme where you go and Pay a certain amount of money and you come out with a credential at the other end and (laughs) bandy it around and get a job. But we haven't necessarily thought about how the ideas translate from one country to another.
0: Yes, I think that's it. And like many aspects of education and specifically outdoor education, there is that sense for those of us involved that this is good, this feels good. So therefore, it must be good. Yes. And culturally, I'll give you an example of how I see things as problematic. If I paint the picture of British schooling, it is very much uh, set in a Victorian time of developing industrialisation and developing the need for compulsory schooling for urban populations. In these times, we're talking about the 1840s, 1850s, and there on. It's very much a Victorian Britain. And Victorian Britain is very much class loaded with the landed gentry and uh, factory owners, and then the, the population who have moved from an agrarian economy working in the fields and now need to be educated. And in order to be educated, schools were set up. And the university I work at, we date back to 1840, where we took poor people off the streets, helped them to become educated, and help them to become the teachers of the next generations. If we cast our minds back, and you may well remember from your time in the UK, Jen, we (laughs) enjoy a lot of grey weather, Mm -hmm. a lot of rainy weather, and a lot of cold weather. And so still to this day, we have our Victorian values in the primary school setting, where when it's raining, recess time, known as playtime in the UK, would be known if it's raining, you have wet playtime, where the children do not go outside to play because they might get wet.
2: (laughs) I remember that well.
0: (laughs) And so we still have that. Now, that makes a lot of sense if we think about poor families, probably walking to school and home again at lunchtime and then back to school. uh, If you only had one coat and you only had one pair of shoes and it's raining, well, if you've walked to school and you're soaking wet, there may have been a fire, probably at the front of the classroom with which you might have put your boots around, your shoes around as a class and hung your coat up. So, of course, in Victorian times, looking after you would have said, well, don't go out and get wet and cold. And there was that belief that if you got wet, that you would catch a fever, that you would get some kind of bug. Mm -hmm. And that was really culturally held, was still held in my childhood by my mother, bless her. Whereas if you then go and look at Scandinavian countries, uh, i 'll give you a, an anecdote of a um, time in a teacher I know who spent in Finland a Finnish school at recess time just before recess the uh, the caretaker, the janitor of the school, came out with a fire hose and this was in November, and he sprayed the entire playing ground, the hard surface with the fire hose and because it was in Finland and it was winter, the water froze. Mm-hmm so that the children could come out and play during their recess, run around, skid skate, put their skates on and generally enjoy the outside. Uh-huh. Uh, similarly, talking to my uh, dear friends and colleagues in Iceland, if they actually did not go outside when it was dark, or if they did not go outside when it was wet or windy or snowy, then they would probably go outside five days a year, in some years. So, Culturally, there's this. Well, of course, we're going to go outside and recreate and have picnics and go for walks. And there's a great phrase from the Forest School movement that one of the sayings is there's no such thing as bad weather, just the wrong clothes.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, as an academic, I heard this and I tried to work out where it came from. I first heard it with the stand up comedian Billy Connolly. <laughs> who's a very sweary Scotsman that is very observational. A Glaswegian by birth, he tells a wonderfully funny story about his grandmother who would say that to him. Now, actually, there's no such thing as bad weather, just the wrong clothes is a play on words in Norwegian, and I won't begin to pronounce (laughs) Norwegian. But there's no such thing as bad weather, just the wrong clothes. It's, It's a rhyme. It reflects their cultural mindset that, Hey, it's of course we're going to go out. We just put a coat on, mm-hmm. and I find today that we still have that kind of attitude to outside and inside. There's another thing to talk about: friluftsliv, and um, oh, you can I've, say it. <laughs> well, I've, I've had a few years practicing, uh, and so I try, but I, I've never been coached by any, <laughs> any regions or Swedes, not yet. Okay. It is, it's actually enshrined within the Norwegian constitution that it is your right to travel over another person's land. And you can actually stay on another person's land out of sight of their property for two weeks. And you may take berries from their land and fish from their rivers. Now, that the, I think in the UK, we're actually quite fortunate in the rights of way that are public. So we have public rights of way that I can walk on. Uh, We have public bridleways that I can ride my horse or my mountain bike on. And we have wild areas where there is, is certainly in England, the Countryside Rights of Way Act, which is called the right to roam. The laws in Scotland are different. We have different governments, different parliaments. And so we actually have a, a right over somebody else's land, but that's to travel that's not to stay. And then, of course, you, you get to the United States where when I've been there and enjoyed my visits, I see the signs posted, trespassers may be shot,
3: mm-hmm.
0: or hunting, or that kind of thing saying, this is my land, you have no right to it, it's mine. And I think we need to understand culturally that who owns the land, who controls the land, who how the laws of the nation or the state are such that that directs how we inhabit the land and the landscape.
2: So I'm curious about how you'd see the defining characteristics of a forest school, because it seems as though those are probably related to how we view land (laughs) as well. And I think that what a forest school is, is a bit different in the US and the UK and, and in Sweden as well. So I don't know if it's possible to gravitate towards some overarching characteristics, but I wonder if you could try and give us a picture of what is a forest school.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly can do that. We could use uh, Sarah Knight's definition, the mm-hmm. one of the leading English authors that's created an academic prominence in the last 20 years with a number of textbooks. Although when you start to interrogate it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start by saying that I argue that forest school is a social construction.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: As all of current outdoor education, adventure education, wilderness trips, sail training, they're all social constructs that are using traditional outside pursuits, uh, whether it be horse riding, ski touring, sailing, and using them for educational purposes. And so when we contrive them in that way, they uh, are socially constructed as is a forest school, particularly in the UK. The question I would raise is, do we actually have forests? Do we have actually have wilderness? Are forests or wildernesses, are they a physical manifestation? Or is it something that starts in the mind? So maybe those are bigger questions than (laughs) how, how is a forest school defined? But that's kind of where my thinking has gone. Yeah. So A forest school as uh, culturally constructed in the UK would be described as where the setting is not the usual one, so somewhere outdoors. It is a safe enough environment that children can learn to keep themselves safe by taking manageable risks. Importantly for the UK, compared to traditional forms of outdoor education, it happens over time, at least half a day, if not a day, every single week for 10 to 12 weeks, so that would be what we would call a term, a semester. Participants go out in all weather. Uh, So whether it's raining, snowy, wet, windy, warm or cold, participants always go out. Trust is central. Learning is as far as possible initiated by the participants. One of the wonderful things that Forest School practice brings to outdoor learning and adventure education in the UK is this idea that it is child initiated and child led rather than the teacher, the leader, the coach, the instructor deciding what the sequence of activities is going to be. Uh, The blocks of sessions have beginnings and endings and the sessions are led by a trained forest school leader who understands the ethos So that's what a forest school setting may look like and we have one on our campus here down in Plymouth. We have a small woodland, we have some trees and we have an area that we can put up an old parachute to give us some shelter from the rain and we have uh, an area where we will build fires, small fires and we can sit around on tree stumps and some woodland to go off and explore and play and do various activities. One of the big focuses for forest school is the sitting around a fire safely.
2: (laughs) In England, yes. In America, they would never let that
0: happen. Well, that's what I understand, and that's what I find quite surprising Uh and also quite sad, really. Yeah. There's a number of things to think about in sitting around a campfire with children. I'm going to suggest to you that if we we take a look at evolutionary psychology – the evolutionary psychologists would say, "Why is it that most people like sitting by a campfire? Do you like sitting by a campfire, Jen?" I do, I do. Yeah, and I can appreciate that. In some parts of California, you would not want to be lighting fires at some times of the year.
2: Certainly, yes.
0: For the uh, for the obvious uh, risks of uh, of hill fires. Yeah. So, do you like being on the beach and staring out to sea? Yes. Yeah. And how about if you climb a hill or a mountain and you're at the top and you get a fantastic view out (laughs) in front of you?
2: Do I just put my head down and walk on or do I stand there
0: and savour it? Yes, I
2: would say I stand there and savour it.
0: So (laughs) so those those three things I think are quite fundamental. Mm. And evolutionary psychology arguments would tell us that that's because those of our ancestors going back thousands of years, those are the ones who survived. Mm. That's in our DNA somehow, and, or it's in, our, it's in our way of understanding the world. In that, if you're going to be invaded by sea, if you stand at the beach and you can see a long way, you can see if the ships are coming and if they're friendly or not. If you have the high ground, mm-hmm. you can see who's coming over to um, meet your tribe. And you can then decide whether they are a um, friend or foe mm-hmm. uh, and what your course of action is. And similarly, sitting by the campfire, that allowed humankind to live in colder climates, it allowed us to cook food, and it allowed us to ward off saber-toothed tigers. So I think the sitting round a fire is something that is fundamental to human existence, to educating people out of doors, and it's quite a focus in forest school. So I think we need to reframe the language that we're not playing with fire, because uh-huh. that would be risky and foolish. Uh-huh. And, and having worked on an American summer camp a number of years ago with teenage boys from the inner city who would wave sticks around the fire, I fully understand just quite how dangerous and risky that can be. But one of the great things, one of the great aspects of a forest school introduction to a fire is there's, you teach the rules of how to be by a fire by playing some games. And there are some clear rules about not stepping across it. You don't put anything in it. And we are then able to sit by the fire and tell stories with it, use it to cook on. And the very act of making a fire is something quite wonderful.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So educationally, there's a lot to be argued for. Playing by it, yeah, let's, let's not play with fire.
2: Yeah. So I'm curious about whether this being outside aspect is a critical component of children's education. I'm specifically sort of thinking beyond the preschool years here. And, you know, is there something unique about being outside and being able to have a fire and being outside in all weather that gives children some kind of benefit that they wouldn't get from a high quality indoor based program where, you know, the learning is child led and they do get to decide what they do? Is there anything unique about the outdoor aspect of this? And if so,
0: what is it? Well, I, I think that's a very good question, Jen, because it's something that has occurred to me over the years. If we take a traditional approach to the outdoors, which forest school would be a traditional approach, it's just a modern way of badging it or describing it. So what is at the heart of a forest school approach is the same as what is at the heart of the Outward Bound approach, which I would – have you heard of Outward Bound?
2: I have, yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Which is actually the same as the Scout movement.
2: Okay. So we're basically talking about outdoor-based education for older children.
0: No. What I'm saying is the ethos of it is that it's about personal and social development. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. So so if you cut an Outward Bound course through the middle, they're not trying to make you the best kayaker or climber.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: It's about the development of self within a group, within a community. And when you read the literature on Forest School, that's what they're doing. It's about developing the sense of self and giving children the chance to be outside. So to answer the critics of outdoor education, well, why do you need to go outdoors? It's wet, it's cold, it's dangerous, it's risky, there's fire, there's bears, there's all of this. Uh The answer to that is if the claims of outdoor education are only that it's about personal and social development. Then, well, you could do that if you played on a sports team, Mm -hmm. uh, performed in a music uh, choir and an orchestra, you did a touring show as part of a drama group. You can achieve that sense of community, that sense of development, because the activities you're doing are the tool by which you go on this personal journey. But what I think the outdoors offers is a couple of things. Number one, the research evidence is there that our time spent in green spaces and blue spaces in nature is um, good for us physiologically and good for us psychologically. And the recent developments in neuroscience and brain scanning technologies are able to show that happening as people watch or see the ocean. The other thing that's really important is in a time of environmental crisis, if we can take people outside, then we may be able to connect them to nature or natural environments or more natural environments. Let's not get into the debate about what do we mean by nature um, (laughs) and uh, outdoor environments. And if we can connect them to those places, we might get them to start to care about those places Mm -hmm. so that they may then act in a more environmentally sustainable way. And there's a body of evidence from environmental education research, a lady called Louise Chola, who showed that the early experiences in environmental settings are more likely to lead to pro-environmental behaviors when we're older. Mm -hmm. And what, what is absolutely wonderful about the forest school movement is that it has taken what was traditionally like outward bound, like the scouts, like the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme, which was for older children and has said, it's not just for slightly younger children at the end of their grade six, but it's for kindergarten children as well. And so if you take kids out from the age of three, you can introduce them to using a knife. You can introduce them to sitting by a fire. You can set them free to run around in woodland and play and use their imagination. And I think one of the phrases I like to use is is from my dear friends in Iceland. They have a variety of words which I will not even begin to try and pronounce, <laughs> but they talk about being under open skies. Now I, I like that. If you know, you're not constrained, you're not in the box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're outside the box. Mm-hmm. And there are some wonderful analogies there with the language we use for creativity and lateral thinking and think outside the box. So, under open skies, there is research evidence that says the earlier we do that, the more likely we are to care about the planet.
3: Mm. Yeah.
0: And of course, with most of our populations now being in urban or suburban environments and places, the more we are likely to engage people in the green spaces, the more likely we are to have some kind of concept about planet, environment, and the world we live in. And I guess, Jen, at heart, I'm just a hopeless romantic Well, wants to build uh, nice communities and a better planet and make people feel good about themselves. Mm. Uh, (laughs) If forest school is one approach to do that, that becomes recognized in early years as the, oh, you know, yeah, my kids are doing forest school then that's absolutely wonderful. My critique was that there's multiple lost opportunities from, because it's lost in translation, that we may not, in Britain, be quite as comfortable letting children play, initiate the play. There's a mistrust of play. It may not happen. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's wonderful about it is, yes, you can do it with older children, It has been used, uh, Sarah and I wrote about forest school for all and had chapters in her book about different contexts, different settings in which you can use forest school. What I've really enjoyed about engaging with it, and I put my hand up, I am not a forest school leader. I have not done the forest school training, but I have read and studied around the subject. What I think is wonderful is the idea of child initiated, child led. I'd like to rephrase that as student initiated and student led. And I've tried to integrate here at university with undergraduate students in our program of uh, outdoor education opportunities for play and playfulness. Because there is a body of evidence that says if we can stimulate these ideas of play and playfulness, that leads in, in, in adults to creativity and innovation. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything we need as our society in the future, we need some creative problem solvers. So that that whole concept of being outside, feeling good about ourselves, physical and mental well-being, and our whole let's um, use it for our brains, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. If I flip the question back on you, Jen, Whoever said that indoor education was a good thing? <laughs> Show me the evidence.
2: Yeah, no, I'm a massive proponent of self-directed learning, and I agree that it the classroom is almost never the best place for that. It can be a good place for it, but it's almost never the best place for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, digging further into that topic on sort of play-based learning, self-directed learning, I am curious to try and help parents who are less familiar with this to understand how can we know if our children are learning something? And I think that maybe in England, it's a bit easier because they're going to regular school four days a week and the forest school is one day a week or half a day a week. And you can kind of see they're making progression in regular school in a sense. And perhaps the forest school experience is enhancing regular school. Mm -hmm. In the US, that doesn't really happen. You're either in regular school or you're in forest school. Mm -hmm. And forest school is usually kind of 9am to 1pm, four or five days a week. And your child is not going to regular school if they're in forest school. And so how can a parent who is considering forest school uh, or whose child is in forest school understand, you know, my kid's going there five days a week. They're not taking formal lessons and they're not being formally instructed in reading or math or anything along those lines. Are they learning anything (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or are they just messing about? And if they are just messing about, is that okay? Is the whole point that they are messing about and that learning how to lead and when to follow and connections to place that they develop and that whole sort of bigger thing is way more important than, you know, can you write an essay on whatever?
0: Mm. That's a very interesting question. And I think like many of these interesting and difficult and challenging questions in certainly in education, comes to the underpinning question of what is the purpose of education? Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So for whom are we educating this child? Mm. And for what outcomes? Now, the state in England pays for education and created through the church many, many, many schools for primary education, you know, K through six. And the government now dictates what is taught in the curriculum and that now starts from the age of three and it's been culturally handed down politicians have got involved with i think the best thing is this or i think the best thing is that and so we have in a neoliberal world of markets free markets and competition my strategy for teaching english is better than your strategy Mm -hmm. My children in my country score better on math tests than your children in your country. There's no discussion about what's best for the child or the well-being of young people. So we have a system where we are judged on our ability to pass exams at certain times, to pass another set of exams, perhaps to go to university or grad school. And that's what we're measuring. What we tend not to measure or we tend to value but we don't tend to measure, is what kind of citizen, what kind of person, what kind of community member is that young person? Now, I'm a big believer in that A, one size doesn't fit all, and there is no right answer. Because let's face it, educationally, Jen, if there were easy answers, I'd like to think that we'd have figured this out a few years. You know? We
2: might be better at it than we are, yes. Yeah. But,
0: and we see the swing of the pendulum about what's best and what's not.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I certainly think that when you're outside, if it is well-facilitated, well-taught, well-led, that it provides such rich, authentic, lived experiences that good teaching around that will teach you everything you ever need to know about numeracy and literacy and science and probably uh, geographies and histories of the place you're in, as well as allowing you to develop your artistic talents. But that requires really good teaching. And play-based pedagogies that I articulate in my article, based upon some work by a professor of education here, Elizabeth Wood, She talks about it as being part of a very thorough planning process. There's unstructured play, there's structured play, there's free play, there's no free play. This is not saying that the best way to educate people is you need to be outside every single day or you need to be playing constantly. It's not saying that, but it's saying that if you integrate that and work that into a rich mesh of your educational provision, your blanket, it's woven in then it will bring an added dimension. And I work locally on Dartmoor with someone who uses the environment, playing games to get 15-year-old boys to write poetry.
3: Mm.
0: And the way it's structured and the games you play, you sense something, you smell something, you taste something, you see something. You scaffold that correctly and that you start to see boys who say, I don't do writing. I'm not interested, you start to see them write poetry and perform it and speak it outside. It's really powerful stuff.
2: I can imagine. I'm getting all tingly thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) The
0: outdoor experiences provide an authenticity. And in a previous uh, life, I worked in high school and I taught science and physics. And the one question in science teaching in England was, are we doing a practical today, sir? Meaning, (laughs) could we do something with our hands? Could we make something, build something, and learn some stuff along the way? Uh And my answer was, whenever it could be, was yes, absolutely. And that often meant going outside to do a something around the laws of physics. That was one way of me educating people outdoors and experientially, which I carry on today. So forest school and outdoor learning more generally will give you a variety of authentic experiences.
2: Mm -hmm. And so digging deeper into that topic of, you use the words well-facilitated and well-taught, and and we're talking about deep, authentic experiences. And so that brings me to the thought of, teacher certifications. And so mm. I the, the forest school certification program in the UK, there is one there, there isn't one here that I could find. You go and have 5 days of training, you work on a portfolio on your own for about 6 months and then you do 4 days of assessment and then you have a level 3 certification so you can design and run a forest school. And I was reading a paper that talked about the intersection of forest schools and knowledge held by First Nations people in Canada mm. and it talked about how Most Forest School practitioners, you know, they're typically not from any kind of culture where they have deep knowledge in this stuff. They learned it sort of, you know, maybe by themselves or during their training. Mm. They're happy to have just a bit more competence than the children they teach. Whereas First Nations people, you know, they've passed this knowledge down for generations. They're true masters at whatever craft they've selected to teach. And so I'm curious, do you think these certifications mean anything? Do they promote quality at all? or are they irrelevant and we'd be better off finding someone who has true deep knowledge, who gives a hoot about whether they have a credential (laughs) and get them to teach our class instead? Well,
0: again, you've hit a much larger educational question.
2: Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Are certifications uh, worthwhile? I would say yes, they are. Because when I send my children off, let's suppose I send them off for swimming lessons, I'd like to know that the person meets a certain standard, is able to work safely and appropriately. Of course, I want them to have the very best. And if I could find um, an Olympic swimmer who's also a good teacher, then I I may wish to introduce them to them. So are teaching certifications worthwhile? There's two things to answer you here, Jen. Uh, Yes, they are. The danger of losing something in translation and a philosophy forest school becoming a commodity, a product, a training package that's sold and marketed by companies uh, means that there's multiple missed opportunities. So I'd like to think that if I send my children to the woods, to the forest on a forest school, that they would be taught by somebody who has a great deal of knowledge, not just a thousand pound training course. How we resolve that in the UK and how how that might manifest itself in the U.S. is our different stories. The interesting thing, you mentioned um, uh, Zabi's Macrikan's paper, a piece about bringing indigenous uh, First Nation elders into any forest school training program. And I was fortunate enough to meet her when I first was talking about this paper at an international outdoor education conference a number of years ago. And she lovingly writes that I disturbed her so much. (laughs) I think that was a good educational disturbance that she went back and said, we must do something about this. Mm -hmm. Now, the corporatization and commodification of Forest School in the UK is such that there are one or two companies who are very successful companies in that their products are widely bought by people wanting training and they have been taken, invited to essentially ex-Empire, ex-Commonwealth, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. And I have also seen on the Facebook group in, there's there's a Forest School USA Facebook group that this company offers online training. That is hugely problematic and hugely arrogant, in my view, in that we are going into countries and saying, we are saying, we're British. This is forest school. This is how you should be in the forest. with It fits
2: pretty well with how we export (laughs) colonialism and (laughs) one or two other ideas.
0: It is absolutely rampant (laughs) colonialism. And as, um, Uh, an Australian Aboriginal outdoor educator explained to me, and we were having a wonderful discussion. He said, European white men have been on my land for about 300 years. My people have been here for Mm 70,000. I think we know a thing or two about the land and the stories and our practices. And of course, what has happened was rampant colonialism uh, diminished that, overwrote it. The histories weren't written down. And so those practices were not passed on. I think the way forward is the way forward that Canada has looked at this and said, this is traditional white European educational practice. And this is what we would like to do, but let's acknowledge the land that we're on. Let's acknowledge the the wisdom and the knowledge of the elders and invite them in. Now, I think there are still elders around in the United States the interesting reason that that would happen, perhaps, is that within England and within the UK, we don't really have indigenous people that are being colonized, except me. I'm an indigenous person. Mm-hmm. It was 1066 and the Normans who came <laughs> over and we became Norman. But before that, the Romans were here. And at one stage, the Celts and the Angles and the Saxons, so those companies in England and the UK wouldn't necessarily begin to imagine that this would be offensive. And educators in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the USA may look at the forest school movement and go, hey, wow, that looks really exciting and really great because it is. Let's bring these guys over and tell us how to do it.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. So I think as an educator, my job is to get you, Jen, my students anyone who crosses my path to think let's think about what we do and why we do it and how we do it and let's underpin our practice with some theory which is really poorly articulated currently in the books and then let's evidence with a quality research what outcomes what do our children learn what is it we want them to learn what is it they have learned Have they made progress? Have they become nicer people, better people, more caring? Are they more self-reliant? And is their ability to work with numbers uh, of any use to them? Currently, the research is mainly anecdotal and small scale. And I'm really hoping that my association with the Forest School Association in the UK will lead to us doing a much larger study as to what are the outcomes from the children's perspective? What is it that they gain from these experiences?
2: Yeah, so let's talk about some of those outcomes. And I prefer to use anecdata rather than anecdotal.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That's a great term. Yeah, I love it.
2: (laughs) So I read a whole bunch of book chapters and journal articles and reports published about Forest School, and a lot of them discuss what are the outcomes. And I'm just going to read a few of them. Okay. I felt that the project was a great success. The greatest measure of success of the gifted and talented forest school program in Plymouth is that the school decided to repeat the program and extend it to older, gifted, and talented children, too. And I'll set aside the fact that this was only for the gifted and talented children as a topic for another episode. Yes. Um, and another quote Evidence has shown the boys participating in the forest school have an increased attendance by as much as 20%, although there's no indication of initial levels of attendance or whether 20% brings you up to an acceptable level or not. Another one. Participants in the Dufferin project said they would know they have succeeded if the children are enthusiastic and the teachers have had fun. Mm. Um, <laughs> really. How can we call this evaluation? I was unable to find, and I believe we talked about this by email. And you said there basically isn't any rigorous evaluation in terms of the quality of children's learning in forest school and how it prepares them for their life. And and I guess partly that's due to what we've been talking about, which is that we're not having this background beginning conversation about what outcomes we want to have. So it's really hard to then go and measure them. So how can we know if these programs are worth doing or
0: not? Well, that's the $64 million question. (laughs) Intuitively, forest school practitioners, uh, parents, children, feel, sense that they are worth doing, as have other programs that take uh, children and young people outside and outside of traditional settings and outside of traditional boxes and outside of traditional power dynamics and relationships of teacher, child, teacher, pupil. There are small pockets of study. There are a number of PhD theses that I have come across that have started to explore the many aspects of what is a forest school practice. And given that it's been probably 15 years now that since it started to pick up and gather interest it has been focused in the early years it has been focused by practitioners and the rigorous educational evaluation hasn't happened the wide reaching evaluations haven't happened they cost money to implement you have to pay me or somebody like me to oversee a project where we come up with a strategy and that forest school experience parallels many other of the outdoor education and learning programs that have gone on in the uk over the last 70 years recently a project that was funded by the paul hamlin foundation looked at school groups who did learning away uh, many countries would call it going off to camp in england when the uk would describe it as having a school residential and these were music art sport and outdoor residentials and they looked at exploring through this anecdata many, 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 many examples of what were the themes and the outcomes from the pupil perspective, from the teacher perspective, and the school perspective. And this was a, I believe it was a five-year study. That would be quite straightforward in part to do for forest school in the UK, and it just requires somebody to invest in the resource to do that.
2: Mm. It almost seems as though you might be closer in the UK because there's somebody starting to make money off it. <laughs> That's usually what it takes, right? <laughs> there has yes. to be somebody who's making money off something related to Fire school in order for there to be research done.
0: Uh, yeah, very possibly. Or it requires somebody to see an opportunity for the various calls for funding for mm-hmm. social impact and change. And I think what you're likely to see is quite a narrow focus, So within the UK at the moment, there are calls for papers to look at mental well-being and suicide rates in teenage boys because they are horribly high. And it might well be that somebody could connect a program of multiple sites, multiple locations around the UK and using a forest school approach, look at the efficacy of what happens to them, you know, and do some measurement and evaluation of that. The reason I wrote my critique was I just wanted to question, I believe it to be positive to, to be involved in outdoor learning. I've, I've done it for most of my adult life. <laughs> so it has I, to be. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm really fortunate. I, you know, I'm in a very privileged position to um, take groups of young adults into the mountains, onto the sea, onto rivers, and look at the whole variety of why we might want to be there and what we can learn about ourselves, others, the planet, and so on. So, of course, I believe in the value of it. And it's hard to argue for when we are talking about things that are measured, that are are important to society, that becomes a mathematics qualification, an English language qualification, which can be taught in isolation in a classroom with 30 people. As soon as I want to take a group out, it costs twice as much money. And we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing Mm. is the same. These outdoor experiences are rich. They are full of deep learning about multiple things. Yet what we have done is done the Henry Ford approach to educating people on a production line. And one teacher puts in the widgets of English. The next one puts in the, the bolts of mathematics. And at the end of it, we wonder why we don't have a car that sits very well together because we're humans. We're not inputs and outputs, but that's how we're treated. And for the most part, well, I had to suffer it. So why shouldn't my children have to suffer it? And I had to do homework. So why shouldn't they have to suffer it? We're caught in this cultural cycle, repetitive cultural cycle, but we see across, you know, the United States, Australia, the UK, where neoliberal values of the market and performance and measurement and accountability and a lack of trust of what educators can do with people. And it's often said that the system of education in Finland is uh, one of the finest and people are the happiest and they don't teach their children to read formally until seven years old. Mm -hmm. So they're not an illiterate nation. So does it matter if you are playing games and talking and using language up until the age of seven. I also had a conversation with a native indigenous educator in Canada, who said that in their tribe, you take a boy out and teach him mathematics when he's ready for it. And Mm -hmm. when he's ready for it, that might be when he's 13, it might be when he's 16. And you could teach everything that he needs to know in the space of several months. Mm -hmm. But that's not the model we use. That's That's not how it works. and. Like I say, I'm aware, I'm aware, Jen, that I want to save the world, change the planet, and uh, everything will be perfect when I'm in charge. And when it comes down to forest school, would I send my children? Yes, I would. It would have to be a good one that I would know about, and I'd want to be involved in it and check out the people leading it. But then that's kind of what I do when I send my children off to school now. Mm. It's kind of what I do if they want to go off and play on a sports team. What club are they gonna go to? What are the coaches like? You know? So my children are fortunate. I gave them knives at an early age, sharp knives, and taught them how to use them. When we go off camping, we build fires. They will cook with me in the kitchen at home. And I'm a great believer in the more responsibility you give children and young people, the more they can accept. And it requires dialogue. It requires dialogue to help young children and young people grow. So forest school is a good thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It could be better. <laughs> There's more. To- let's not lose sight of what it is and let's fight against the commodification, the corporatization of uh, education in many forms.
2: Yeah. All right. And on that note... <laughs> We'll bring some power to our interactions with forest school and try and make them into culturally appropriate tools that really achieve what we want them to achieve, rather than what some bureaucracy off, who doesn't know us or our children, says says that uh, is important.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing this, and i I think I'm going to say that even though. The research base is dodgy on this. We're going to go ahead with continuing to consider forest schools strongly in, in educational options for our daughter.
0: That sounds great, Jim. Yeah. And I don't think, I, I don't think the research is dodgy.
2: <laughs> I just don't think The it's evidence there. for efficacy
0: <laughs> I just don't think it's there yet. Yeah. Because we've not invested in it yet. Yeah. Um, and you know, maybe there will come a time when the people who do it will be in a position to effectively evaluate their own practice mm-hmm. in a thorough and robust research, uh, ed- educational research manner. So I look forward to that. And that's part of what my role is here at the university. So I'm in a great place to help try and change things.
2: Indeed. Well, thank you so much for working on that and for your time and helping us walk through these issues today and understand more about them.
0: Hey, you're more than welcome. It's a, It's been a real pleasure. And I don't know where the time's gone. <laughs>
2: it has gone indeed. So listeners can find references for today's episode at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash forest
1: school. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.